crowd. Good to have you. Tonight is our first lesson in our Does God Exist small group. And while we wait on Brandy to get some more copies made, um, let's, let's pray about what we want to um, want to learn from this and any special needs that you might have. So does anybody have any special prayer requests this evening that we can pray, pray about? <clears throat> yes. Okay. All right. Anyone else? Yeah, buddy. Yes, sir. Anyone else? Yes. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Anyone else? The Lord knows exactly where you are and what you're going through, and He cares about what you care about. So those unspoken prayer requests that you are thinking about even right now that maybe you can't let everybody in on, that's okay. God knows exactly where you are and what you're going through. And um, when, when we say unspoken, He knows what we're talking about. And I'm, I'm glad of that. So glad of that tonight. So um, let's bow our heads in prayer. We're going to ask the Lord to bless these services. And then we'll get right into our study. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, how good you are to us. Thank you for those that are here this evening. And, God, we want to hear from you. We know it's not by accident that any of us are here, but by your sovereign will. You've brought us to this place uh, to learn your truth. Lord, help us to see what you want us to see, what we need to see, so that we can be better lights in this dark world. Help us, Father God, um, to be what you've called us to be by your power. Lord, I'm praying now in Jesus' name that you would do your work, Help me to speak truth, not in my power, but in yours, Holy Spirit. Have your will and way, for we know that's exactly what we all need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Anna Kate, engage. Hand those, hand those out right there. Make sure that everybody gets one of each of those papers, okay? While they're doing that, tonight what we're going to be looking at uh, is really the purpose behind this class. While we're doing what we're doing if we're going to be talking about and trying to answer the question, um, does God exist? I know that whenever I even ask that question, some of you are thinking even right now, brothers, I know God exists. I've experienced God's power and I've experienced God's presence in my life. I know that he's done a work in me and he's now doing a work on me and through me that only he can do. And if you've placed faith in Jesus and you've received this free gift of salvation, the eternal life that comes in knowing the Lord. Once you've received that, there's no question whether or not God exists. Can you say amen? And so I get exactly what you're, what you're, where you're coming from. I feel the same way. I know because of what God's done in my life that, that he's, he's real. Um, and, and his word is truth. Because I've taken God's word and I've applied it to my life. And I've seen what a difference it's made in me. The difference it's made for me. I know I've experienced the peace that only Jesus can bring. I know he's real. I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life. I know he's real. And for the people of faith, we know that because of that personal relationship that we have with the Lord. And that's a powerful thing. But the purpose of this class is not as much to be able to defend your faith with the people of faith. There's really no need for that. The purpose of this class is to defend your faith and also be lights in a world filled with darkness to those who don't yet believe. Amen? 
See, it's very hard to talk to an unbeliever about your personal relationship with Jesus because they're not going to know where you're coming from. They haven't experienced the power of God. They don't know the peace of God. They don't know how the Lord works in you and on you and through you. And so if they've never experienced that, it's going to be really, really hard to prove to them how real and how good God is. But what you can do, what we need to do, and what the Bible commands us to do is to take the evidence that we have in the natural world and point them to a supernatural God. And that's very powerful, I'm telling you. Um, and, and let me say something else, too, before we even get started with all this. We're going to be using words like atheist and agnostic, but those are not bad words. Those are not dirty words. And those people who claim to be atheist or agnostic, they're not the enemy. Do you realize that? Uh, for a long time, that's really how I was taught growing up, that those who don't believe in God, they're the enemy. No, they're not the enemy. They just need Jesus. I was taught those people who claim to not have faith in Christ or, or, or not know, being agnostic, that somehow we're, it's us and them. We're against them. No, we're not against them. It's our duty, and we are commanded as believers to preach the gospel to everybody. And what those people need is the truth. They're in the dark and they need the glorious, marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ to shine in their hearts. They're spiritually dead and they need to be resurrected and brought into the newness of life. And that can only happen when we preach the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit because we love them. Amen? And that's true for everybody, but it's certainly true for those who claim to be atheist or agnostic. Um, and so I, we're going to be using those words a lot and we'll be talking more about that. But I just want you to know, don't look at people like that as the enemy. Look at it as an opportunity, <laughs> an opportunity to share your faith and really make a difference. Let me say something else before we get started in this. I'm never and you're never ever going to be able to put God in a test tube and logically figure him out. That's not going to happen. And that's not the purpose for this class. If that was the purpose for this class, we'd be backing up before we ever got started. See, it's going to be very hard for me with a finite mind and you with a finite mind to understand that which is infinite. When we have limited knowledge and God has omniscience or all knowledge, it's going to be really hard for me to understand, figure out, and reasonably state to you or to anybody else why God does what he does and how all of this came together and me be able to explain that. We're never going to be able to do that. That's why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. See, there comes a time when you have to place your faith in who God is and what he says. And the truth is, that, folks, I can't make anybody have faith. <laughs> and you know you can't make anybody have faith. That's not my job. That's God's job. The Bible says in the book of Romans that God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. It's God's job to give people faith. Now, the truth is, though, I don't really think faith is the problem. 
Everybody has faith. Believe me, the atheist and the agnostic who are wrestling with the same questions that we wrestle with, like the question of origin, they have a lot of faith. And if they believe the stuff they claim to believe, they've got a whole lot more faith than I've got. And we're going to look at how that works. We really are. I'm just saying, though, the problem for people not following Jesus or trusting in Jesus, the problem is not faith. The problem is sin. Again, they're in the dark. They need the Lord. They're spiritually dead. They need to be brought into the newness of life that only Christ can bring. And that's where we get to be a part of this thing. We can't save anybody. We can't give people faith. But what we can do is give reasoned, logical arguments that point them to faith in Jesus. We can do that. And we should do that. We should do it. Because if we don't, guess what? Their only hope is hell. So it's our duty... And we are commanded by God as his people to go forth and share the gospel with every man, woman, boy, and girl that we can possibly share it with. They're not the enemy. They just need the Lord. So what we're going to be doing is, is looking at some of the tough questions, some of the things that maybe you've thought about or your kids have come in and asked you about. Um, and I want to be able to look to the truth and find the answers we need to some of the tough questions. We can't answer everything, but there are a lot of answers to the tough questions that we certainly need to be looking at. And I want to tell you this too. Like I've said before, in any small group that we do, you really get out of this what you put into it. So I'm asking you to put something into it. I'm asking for discussion. I'm asking for questions. If you've got some, um, something that the Lord has revealed to you that you feel like you need to share, by all means, this is going to be a very informal thing. All right. I want to learn from you. Hopefully you can learn from me. We can all grow together in our faith and understanding of who the Lord truly is according to his word. And according to the evidence we have. And, and that's another big word that we're going to be using a lot. Evidence. Listen to me. Faith, biblical faith, is not a leap in the dark. It's not. But faith is when we look at the evidence that we have that points us in the direction of the cross, that points us in the direction of a God who loves us. That's true biblical faith. My faith is not a leap in the dark, but it's based upon evidence that I know to be true, and we're going to see how all that works. So that's the purpose of this class. We're going to do our best to answer the question, does God exist? Not just looking at the biblical stuff. We're going to look at plenty of that, believe me, but also at the evidence we all have. How many of you know we've all, whether we're believers in Christ or we're Muslims or we're Hindus or we're whatever or we're atheists or agnostic, we've all got the same evidence. We've all got the same natural world. So what we're really looking to is what Dr. Stephen Meyer calls the inference to the best possible explanation. I like that. I like that. And through this study, that's what we're going to be looking for. What does the evidence infer? What is the inference that we come to, the realization that we come to, when we look at the evidence that we have? After I started studying this stuff for myself, I've always been for laying all the evidence out on the table, and let's objectively look at it and see where it points us. And I'll promise you this. If you do that objectively with an open mind and a hungry heart, it can't help but lead you 
to the God of the Bible. You do not have to be ashamed for your faith in Jesus. You do not have to be ashamed for your trust in the Word of God. We're going to look at a lot of that too. So that, that's the purpose of this class. That's really what our aim is. If you've, has everybody got your hand out? It should say lesson one, lights in a dark world. How many of you know that we live in a dark world? Do you, do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you, you don't have to look far to see it. I mean, you, you've got to be living under a rock somewhere if you don't see the evidence of the darkness that we're in each and every day. Turn on your television, man. Read your newspaper. Look on the internet. Uh, listen, just get out in the world in which you live. Go to your local schools, and you're going to see that we are certainly in a very, very dark world. Now, as believers, as those who follow Christ, we are called to be lots in this. Can you say amen? We are called to be spreading the light of the glorious gospel wherever God places us. And like I've told you many times before, wherever God places you around people who need Jesus, that becomes your mission field. Whether it be at your schoolhouse or the workplace or your house or the grocery store or the ball game, wherever you're at and there's lost people there, that's where you're called to be a light. That's where you're called to show and share the love of Jesus. Brother Kyle done a great job this morning telling us about a man who was walking out his faith as his workplace without him even knowing how he was impacting uh, this brother. He was just living his life, doing what he knew God had saved him to do, and it was making a difference. You know, let me tell you why? Because people watch you. People are looking at you. They're looking at how you react to certain situations. They're looking at the decisions and choices you make. They're looking at the joy that you're supposed to have as a child of God. They're looking at your patience. They're looking at all, uh, for all those fruits of the Spirit that's mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. They're wanting to see something real in you if you claim to be a follower of Christ. They're looking at you, and you have influence. And so we are called to be lights in the darkness. The apostle Peter tells us exactly how to do that in the book of 1 Peter chapter number 3. Flip over there with me tonight. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start there in verse number uh, 11. We'll go from in 1 Peter chapter 3, 11 through 16. Now, the first thing that Peter tells us to do, if we're going to be lights in a dark world, the first thing we must do as believers is run from evil. Look what the Bible tells us there, verse number 11. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. The word eschew means to abstain from, to get away from it. Now, why is it important that as Christians, we should run from evil? We should get away from evil. We should eschew it, like Peter says. Well, the importance of that is that God is holy. And if we're claiming to be children of God, we are to be holy just as Christ is holy. Can you say amen? Peter says that as well. He says, be ye holy, even as Jesus is holy. That's what we're called to be. As children of God, born again into his family, we should do everything and we can in our power to live holy lives and then let God do what he's promised to do in his power to help us do that. As he works on us, works in us, 
and works through us. So we run from evil. Look at 1 Peter chapter number 1, verses 14 and 15. I put that there in your notes. Look how the Bible puts this. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust or the former desires of the old man in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Somebody give me a good definition for that biblical word conversation. What does it mean? Conduct, good. Your lifestyle. Now, and a lot of people think when we talk about conversation, we're just talking about speech. And we're certainly talking about speech there, but it goes much deeper. Not only what you say, but how you act. How you live day by day. Your conduct at any given time. And what the Bible is saying to us is that we as children of God are to endeavor to live holy lives daily, doing all we can do in our power and trusting God to do what he can only do in his power so that we might live a life pleasing unto him, so that we might live holy lives. That's what Peter's telling us. So we should run from evil. God is holy, and if we're his children, we are to be holy. We should also abstain from evil, but we don't have to fear evil. We, we need to stay away from evil. We need to shun evil in our lives, but we don't have to fear it. How many of you are glad that you don't have to fear the enemy? I am so thankful for that. Listen, I, I'm not one of these guys who calls out Satan. And you shouldn't be one either. I've, I've heard some of these people who want to call out Satan and want to tell Satan all that they're going to do to him. Don't do that. Don't do that. Matter of fact, the Bible commands against that. Let me tell you why. Satan has more power than you have. He does. He can wreck you. We should respect the enemy, but we need not fear the enemy. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Again, if you remember, 1 John 4 and 4 tells us that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I don't have to fear evil. I don't have to fear the darkness because I have the light of the Lord Jesus on the inside of me. The person of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. You have Jesus living in you. In the person of God, the Holy Spirit. So you do not have to be afraid. Look there, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number uh, 12 through 14. For the eyes, watch what it says, of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. You don't have to fear the enemy, and you don't have to fear people in this world who would try to do bad things to you. You don't. Why? Because God promises to protect us. To be with us. Even in the midst of persecution, he's promised to be with us. The Bible never says that we won't be persecuted. Matter of fact, it says we will be persecuted. The Bible never says that we won't go through hard times. Matter of fact, it says we will go through hard times. The Bible actually says that we as believers, if we're living out our faith and endeavoring to live holy lives, we will be hated in this world. Jesus said, if they've hated me, they'll hate you also. If they've persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So you need to understand, persecution will come to those who live by faith. The good news is, God walks with you even in the midst of persecution. One, one of my favorite books is, um, is um, golly, it just left me. It's my, I promise it's my favorite book, but 
Um, but I just completely lost the whole title of it. Um, martyrs. What? Fox's Book of Martyrs. Thank you, brother. Fox's Book of Martyrs. If there's one thing that really touched my heart in reading about these people who died because of their faith, because they were being persecuted, not because they'd done something wrong, but because they've done something right. They're just following Jesus. They're preaching the gospel. And the world hated them because of it. Many of them, as they were led to being burned at the stake, was praising God to the top of their lungs and singing the hymns of the faith, even when the flames was coming up their body. How is that possible? I'll tell you how. God has promised to be with you in good times and in bad times. God has promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you. I've always wondered if I faced that type of persecution, would I be able to stand with a smile on my face still praising Jesus? I hope so. I can certainly say this. The same Holy Spirit that helped them can help us because he'll be with us in our time of trouble and persecution just like he was with them in their time of trouble and persecution. So we do not have to fear evil. God is greater. If you believe it, say amen. The Bible teaches that. God sees us. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 12, For the eyes of the Lord are ever on the righteous. Isn't that good? God's always looking out for you. See, God is doing things for you that you don't even know he's doing. His eyes are always looking for you, looking out for you. He's protecting you in ways you didn't know you needed protecting from. Protecting you from things, excuse me, that you didn't know you needed protection from. He knows the whole story when we don't know. God sees us, but also God hears us. His ears, the Bible says in verse 12, is open to our prayers as his people, and God rejects evil. The Bible says that the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, and that's the truth. So the Bible is telling us that God's face is against those who do evil that are unbelievers, but it is, his face is turned toward those who have trusted in him because his eyes are ever on his children and his ears are always open to their cries. I don't know about you, but that excites me. So if we're going to be lots in this world, number one, we've got to run from evil. Number two, we've got to be real in our relationship. Folks, if there's one thing, one thing, that we need to remember, people are looking for that which is real. That's what they want to see. If you're doing all you can do to witness to a lost loved one, let me tell you what they want to see. They want to see the power of God at work in your life. They want to see you living out your faith in the church house and in your house. They want to see that realness because <laughs> that makes all the difference. And I think that's exactly what Peter's talking about here. When he says in verse number 15, look there, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Sanctify, sanctify, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. What does it mean to sanctify? To sanctify means to set apart as special. And if Jesus is truly Savior, then he must be your Lord and Master. Have you ever heard somebody say that they've accepted Jesus as Savior but not as Lord? You ever heard somebody say that? I don't know. How, how do you do that? Because that's not biblical. 
Jesus can't truly be your Savior if he's not Lord. If he's Lord, that means what he says goes. That means he's the master. He is special to you. You sanctified him in your heart. And now it's not about what you want, but what he wants. Now it's not about your plans, but it's about his plans. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. For ye are bought with the price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I love that. You're bought with a price. You're no longer your own. Yes, he is my Savior. And because he's my Savior, he is my Lord. Amen? What he says go. What he wants goes. We just need to learn to say yes to Jesus. Amen? That's what the Bible's calling us to do. That's what it means to accept him and make him Lord of our lives. So we've got to, first of all, run from evil. We've got to be real in our faith. And number three, we've got to be ready to defend our faith. That's what the last part of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is saying. It says that we need to be ready to give an answer. Does everybody see that? 1 Peter 3, 15, brother, if you will. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. I put this in your notes here. To give an answer is translated from the Greek word apologia. The same word we get our English word apologetics from. And in there I put uh, my favorite definition for apologetics. It's the defense of our faith through reasoned arguments and evidence. And again, that's the purpose of this class. We want to give reasoned arguments and point to evidence that we know will point a lost and dying world um, to the God of the Bible. That's our purpose for this. So why do we do apologetics? Well, it's very simple. First and foremost, God tells us to. Why do we study apologetics? Why do we uh, make ourselves ready through training like we're doing in this class to get ready to give an answer? Because there's a lot of questions out there. Amen? And you know what I figured out? No matter where you go, the questions are the same. If you talk to people in Hamilton, Alabama, they're going to have some of the same questions about who God is and what God's done that people in Cuba have. When we were down there, you know, uh, Cuba being under a uh, communist dictator for, for many years, they're, they're um, pretty much, I'm not going to say, I, I'm afraid to give a percentage, but I'm going to say the majority of those people hold to an atheistic viewpoint somewhat. Because you got to remember, in communism, government is God. There's no need for God. There's no teaching of God. God, the government takes care of you from the womb to the tomb. There's no need to trust in the God of the Bible. And many of them don't. I've been to Cuba now three times. The first time we went, we went into a, a, a suburb there around Havana. And I'm telling you, most of the people that I talked to held to an atheistic viewpoint. They had no need for what we had to say and would not even welcome us in. And if they did welcome us in, um, they were hitting you with these questions, one right after another. And I found out the importance then of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. It's very, very important. And they were asking the same questions, questions about origin, how we got here, and, and, and why we're here. Um, just like the questions I get here, right here in Hamilton, Hamilton, Alabama. So no matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, you get the same questions everywhere. So we want to be able and ready to give an answer, and God commands us to do that in 1 Peter 3.15. That's the first reason why we teach apologetics while we're going through things like this. Secondly, 
Um, and this is something that I got from a Ken Ham conference about 10 years ago now. I went down to, um, what is the name of that church? Church at Brook Hills in Birmingham for a uh, Answers in Genesis conference, 10 year, I guess 10, 11 years ago now maybe. And while I was there, I found something out that absolutely broke my heart as a pastor. This is the, the statistic he gave. 78% of kids who grow up in church walk away from their faith after college. I want you to think about that. Almost 8 in 10 kids who grew up in church. I'm talking about they're in church for Sunday school. They're in church for Sunday morning worship. They're in church for Sunday night. They're in church for Wednesday night youth group. They go on all the trips, the mission trips and the youth party. They do all of that. But when they go away to college, 78% never return to the church again. Does that bother you? I mean, we've got kids running around everywhere here. And that absolutely breaks my heart to think that if statistics hold true, almost eight out of every ten uh, kids we have here will leave church after their college years and never return. Now let me tell you what I believe the reason is for that. I think a lot of it has to do with children seeing their parents one way at church and another way at home. And, and they don't see the need in following Jesus because it hadn't made a real difference in mom and dad's life. I think that's part of it. Number two, I think that for a long time, the church has been lazy in answering the tough questions. And, I, and I'm saying that um, just from my own experience. When I was growing up, it was almost like you couldn't ask the tough stuff. Nobody wanted you to. And you felt bad if you did because everybody would think, well, he don't have any faith. And I always had these questions. I was always thinking about this stuff. How did God do this? Why did God do that? How do we know that's what God did? I was always thinking that, but I was afraid to answer it because when I did answer it, it was almost like I was looked down on. And people would say things like, well, you just got to believe. You just got to have faith. Listen to me. God never called us to place faith in him and put our mind in a drawer. Because again, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is looking at the evidence we have, seeing where it leads us. Are you getting me? And so I want you to know, if your kids have questions, let them ask them. Let them ask them. I want you to know this. If you have questions, ask them. In this class, if you have questions, ask them. Now, let me tell you what this, though. I, you probably have already figured this out a long time ago, but I certainly don't have all the answers. I don't. I don't claim to. And if I don't have the answer, I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. And, but I'll tell you what I will do. I will promise you we will do everything we possibly can according to the truth of the word of God and the evidence we know we have to answer the questions that you have, whatever they are. There are no stupid questions. If you really want to know the answer, ask it. That's what we're here for. But I think for a long time, kids were discouraged from doing that. And then let me tell you what happens. They leave home from the bubble that they live in and they go to a liberal university and believe me, all of them are liberal. Matter of fact, every four-year university 
that I have had any dealings with or had anybody tell me about them. I've never been to a four-year state college. I've never been to a four-year university. But from all of the people who have been there, they have told me your, your faith will be attacked when you come to a place like that. And really, time, really what I think happens, a lot of times our kids go there not having had any of this teaching that we're talking about, never being able to answer these tough questions or ask these tough questions to get answers. And then they get a man standing in front of a class who um, has that uh, at least authority in that room <laughs> and they see as being a very knowledgeable person and he's given them these answers that completely turned them against their faith. And man, that's so dangerous. And this statistic that I gave you, it's at least 10 years old, 78. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. I hope I'm wrong. But I'm going to say the numbers are even higher today than they were 10 years ago. And, and, and listen to me now. This just don't happen in, in universities anymore. I mean, we saw it. in Now it's happening in high schools everywhere, middle schools everywhere. All of our government-owned and run schools Everywhere. Maybe it's subtly that this happens, and maybe it's right in your face, depending on where you are. I don't think it's right in our face where we are right now uh, in our area, but I can tell you it's worse than it used to be just because of the curriculum that I see taught. And so it's very important that we teach these things to our children. I would hate to know that eight out of our ten kids left the church and never returned, wouldn't you? Do you see the importance of classes like these? Do you see the importance of apologetics? Number three, people are searching for truth. And if we can give them reasoned, logical arguments and evidence of our faith, then we become effective in evangelizing the lost. And I want to be effective. And I believe we can certainly be effective and point them to Jesus through the study of apologetics. We must be ready to defend against competing worldviews. Now, somebody give me uh, the definition for worldview. What do you think it is? Absolutely. How you view the world, the, the lens through which you see the world. As Christians... What is our worldview? What'd you say? Absolutely. We ought to have a biblical worldview. Why? Absolutely, because it's our standard. It's the truth that God has given us. It's the instructions by which we are to live our life. <laughs> It's, it, it tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. It tells us how much we need Him and what He's done for us in the person of His Son. It tells us what we need to know to live life here and to be ready for our eternity. And so what we have as Christians, what we ought to have, is a biblical worldview. We ought to view the world through the lens of the Bible. Now there are some competing worldviews out here and we're going to be talking a whole lot about them as we go through this. First of all, materialism. Materialism is the belief that nothing exists outside of matter and denies the supernatural. Now what, what I'm saying is the, the materialist believes that the universe came into existence because of matter. Well, 
That really is a self-defeating argument. It's a self-defeating claim. You have to have something that created or someone, an intelligence of somehow, something that created matter to begin with. Matter cannot produce itself from nothingness. Now we believe as, as, as Christians, as people with a biblical worldview, that God created ex nihilo. From nothing, he created everything. We believe that he is the designer of the universe and we're going to be arguing through this class um, how he did that and why he did that, okay? And we're going to give an evidence for it. But materialists don't believe that. It denies all supernatural interference into the natural material world. Relativism, what does that mean? It's the idea that truth is not absolute but varies according to circumstances. Do you see that at work in our world today? Matter of fact, I think we are battling more against the thought that truth is relative than anything else. Um, I never would have dreamed that we would be living in a world where we are arguing about how many genders there are. I thought we had pretty much figured that out. The state of New York itself right now recognizes 27 different gender types. 27. Would you say... That is an exercise in relativism, that truth is relative. See, truth is the idea that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and my truth is based upon how I feel and my past experience and your truth is based upon how you feel and your past experience. And there is no absolute truth. Do you see how that causes problems? Do you see how Satan uses that? After all, if there is no absolute standard, there is no right and there is no wrong, then I can do what I feel like doing when I feel like doing it with no consequence. If there is no absolute truth, there is no standard, and my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, there is no sin. Now, if there is no sin, then I have no need for a Savior. And if there's one thing Satan wants us to believe, because he came to kill, steal, and destroy, is that nobody needs a Savior. So do you see how all of this works? Do you see how the enemy is operating through these competing worldviews? Do you see how it's messing everything up? I mean, goodness gracious, we don't even know what bathroom to go in anymore. It's ridiculous. But all of it is because of the thought, the idea, the worldview of relative truth. Now, the third one that we're going to look at is humanism. And it's a philosophy that denies the supernatural God and stresses an individual self-realization through reason. Denies that God is supreme. And, and really what humanism is all about is that we are our own gods. I think it was, uh, it was Ben that was uh, sharing in his devotion one Sunday morning a few months back. And he said something like this, and brother correct me if I'm wrong, but he said that really the problem with us all is we're all trying to be God in our garden. And we've got to come to the place where we either trust God to be God or we're going to remain God in our garden. Because that was, the, that was what was happening with Adam and Eve. Amen? They wanted to be as God. That's why Eve took of the forbidden fruit to start with. And humanism teaches then we can come to that place where 
We make decisions. We make the call. We're in control when the truth is God's always been in control and always will be. So these are the three main worldviews that we'll be competing against and arguing against in, uh, in the upcoming weeks. Has anybody got any comments or questions tonight before we close?